This is ODAT Chat, your instant connection to recovery and community, one day at a time. This podcast may contain strong language, sexual content, and spiritual truth. Listener discretion is advised. This episode is brought to you by the new ODAT Chat Closed Group. I recently interviewed Omar Pinto of the Share Podcast, which, by the way, has over 1.2 million downloads. So that's huge. He actually suggested I create a closed group just for the listener. So now you have one. And the purpose of the closed group is to offer a private environment to discuss recovery and general topics from the show. So to join, just visit odatchat.com and look for the closed Facebook group. This podcast is made possible by wonderful listeners like you. The podcast will always be free, but if you'd like to help me out and keep the podcast going, please consider a $5 monthly donation. You won't miss it at all, and it will totally help me out. As a thank you, I'll give you a shout out and give you access to members-only content. For more details, visit odatchat.com and look for the big old red Patreon button on the right. That's O-D-A-A-T chat.com. Thanks so much for your support. Welcome to the ODAT Chad podcast. My name is Arlena and I'll be your host. If you're new here, this is a podcast where my guests and I talk about how to recover from alcoholism and many forms of addiction. Uh, if you hear noise in the background, that is my English bulldog Gus. He's um, snorting and rolling around on the ground. So pay no attention to the bulldog. Uh, Before I jump into the overview of today's podcast, I just want to share a reading from one of my favorite daily readings called Jesus Calling. Um, Jesus is kind of a word that uh, can be emotionally charged for some people, so let's just call it um, Jesus Calling. How about that? Uh, Let's see. I read this this morning, and I've been kind of in this mode of struggling and striving, and it just leaves me feeling kind of burnt out and exhausted. So I read this, and I thought it was awesome. So here it is. It is not so much adverse events that make you anxious as it is your thoughts about those events. Your mind engages in effort to take control of a situation to bring about the result you desire. Your thoughts close in on the problem like, ravenous wolves. Determined to make things go your way, you forget that I am in charge of your life. The only remedy to switch your focus from the problem to my presence. Stop all your striving and watch to see what I will do. So anyway, yeah, it was actually just really good for me to read that this morning. Just kind of makes me feel like I can take a deep breath and stop trying so hard. So there you have it. And let's see. So today my guest is Rinda Laurel. She spent her early years in the music business where her heroin addiction developed. Uh, Rinda was kind enough to share how she was able to recover um, from heroin, which, you know, that is a very difficult addiction to overcome. But she did. She shares her experience, how she maintained her sobriety over 25 years now. She actually provides some some of the most practical advice for newcomers that I've ever heard. Advice beyond the typical 12-step recovery suggestions that you hear at meetings. Her approach incorporates the body, mind, and spirit in a holistic approach. I actually learned a lot from her, and I hope you do too. So with that, please enjoy this conversation with Rinda. 
Well, Rinda, thank you so much for joining me on the ODAT Chat Podcast. Thank you. Thank you for having me. I'm very excited to talk to you, and as we were just discussing, um, I didn't know quite how to introduce you, and I thought it would be fun to have you introduce yourself as if we were at a cocktail party, a cocktail party, and someone was, yeah, introducing you. uh, What would you say to somebody like, oh, what do you do for a living? Yeah, I do. Cocktail parties are still, I still do those, and networking parties. Um, You know, I I laugh because that sort of does depend on the party these days. I've been in the music industry, entertainment industry for, you know, 30 years or something like that. I still consider myself a brand strategist and a CMO for hire. Um, I still have a handful of music business clients and brand clients that I attend to. And then I also now have launched my own company. So I would say Mm -hmm. turned entrepreneur uh, and I launched my own company called Very Every Day. Very every day, awesome, and we'll and we'll get into that as well. Um, typically, what I do is, um, and I didn't realize I had stopped doing this, but um, I started out when I started out doing the podcast. I was asking people to sort of describe themselves, like physically, so that they could kind of get a mental picture in their mind of. <laughs> and I'll certainly put up. A <laughs> you're cringing. We're doing this on Face Chat, but um, yeah, give me a quick description of what you look like so people can get an idea in their mind of I think you just made me blush and I always, <laughs> that's hilarious um I'm 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 five foot tall uh, good things come in small packages I always like to say um I've got dark hair um and green eyes uh yeah I don't know what else to say that's such an I know <laughs> That's good. And okay, so tell me a little bit about the kind of family that you grew up in and like maybe like what your parents did for a living. Uh, Okay. Uh, I was born nine months after the summer of love in San Francisco. So the name Rinda, the name Rinda is actually kind. I love, I love having a unique name. I'm just like, I always say, I'm glad I'm not Starbeam or Moonchild or something like that. Um, (laughs) It was, you know, a tumultuous time in our country. Uh, my my parents were very young. My mom was 20, and my dad was in the army, Vietnam. When I always like to tell the story about how my mom went to see the doors when she was pregnant with me, because I think that explains more about my my career trajectory than anything else. Um, you know, dark club, iconic rock stars. So that was basically it. They were young. Did your dad stay in the military? I don't know that much about my dad after we, my mom uh, and dad split up when I was three and a half and we moved to Southern California. And then we met shortly after that, we met the man who raised me when I was about four and he has been with me ever since. Uh, okay. And so I had a very pretty solid, you know, they were young, so we moved around a lot when I was a child, but, and my dad was a truck driver. My mom was um, various jobs and also stayed at home with the rest of us kids and then also waitressed. So, you know, really hard, hard working, hard working family, very hard working family. My upper echelons of my family, my aunts and uncles, there was a lot of chaos going around there that I absorbed as a child, but Otherwise, you know, pretty stable in terms of my core family. Um, I was an only child until I was nine. And then my parents 
So my dad who raised me and my mom had uh, three more children pretty quickly in a row. So I have three siblings that are nine years uh, younger than me. Okay, so you were like the built-in babysitter. I was, and what's interesting is my mom was the oldest, the second oldest of seven, so I'm actually closer in age to my aunt than I am to my little sister, so I'm very in the center of things, and and I still, I've I've noticed in my adulthood and in looking at, in retrospect, that I still do really straddle that line a lot. Like, I work in an industry where I work with musicians that then I can go into the club and hang out with musicians, but I'm really happy to also just go hang out with a super fan. So I I can sort of go in, but I don't really Mm -hmm. fit in in either one. And that sort of, I think, stems a lot from my childhood of, of, you know, not being part of my mom's siblings, not being a sibling, but then also being older than my sisters and brothers. Um, And I became a little adult very early, one, because I was solo for the first nine years, and then, yes, built-in babysitter and little adults, and, you know, that, that garnered me a great responsibility career. Um, so I, but it also caused me a lot to put other people's needs before mine for many, 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 many years. Yeah. How did you feel when your, your mom and stepdad started having kids? Did you feel like, were you, did you feel left out or were you excited about having a baby sibling or how did you feel about it? I love these podcasts that I've been doing. You know, I just started doing them in the last two months, and the questions you guys all asked are so fascinating because I haven't looked at a lot of this stuff in a long time. Mm. Uh, I think I was excited. You know, my dad, when he asked my mom to marry him, we all got married. Aww. Yeah, like even the, the, the cute little hippie ceremony you see in the backyard, like I, I, he, the guy married all, all three of us. So, you know, I, I always felt a part of. I don't, I don't. I don't have any resentment towards them like as a kid, like, well, you, you ruined my life. Now I have no, none of that. When I was a teenager, I got a little bit, you know, at one point I pulled the, like, you're going to let me what, babysit your children, but you're not going to let me stay out till 1030 or midnight at, you know, like that kind mm-hmm. of rebel teenager thing. So I, they, they quickly found another babysitter and made me come home at midnight instead. <laughs> so you know. No, that's interesting, though. I had a similar experience in the sense that um, I had a mom who was like, raised my sister and I to be super independent, but then she wanted us to follow her super strict rules. And it's like, you can't really have it both ways, right? Mm-hmm. And and it kind of sounds like that was, it, that's just sounded familiar when you were talking about how your parents gave you a lot of responsibility and you needed to be the little adult taking care of these kids, but then you didn't have that adult freedom to go do what you wanted at night. Well, to be fair, they did give me freedom. I wanted more. <laughs> <laughs> we always want more. I mean, I was super rebellious. I just got away with it a lot when I was a kid. I used to, you know, as a teenager, I'd sneak out and go hang out. And, and yeah. you know, I, I'm, I'm looking back on a lot of these things again now that I'm starting to tell my story again and finding, you know, what I thought was somewhat normal not be somewhat normal, like sneaking out and, and stuff like that. So, yeah. When you were sneaking out, were you uh, staying out all night or were you like, <laughs> so what we used to do is I would tell my, my mom that we were staying at my girlfriend's house and she would tell her parents that she's staying at my house and we just stay out all night. <laughs> oh yeah. I pulled that one a couple of times. Or <laughs> yeah. sure. I did get caught once. I did get caught once and then I couldn't, 
So I think my parents told me, you can't have your driver's license for six months after your birthday, which was like uh, the worst thing they could have done for me at that time period. Because uh, all I wanted was my freedom, and that's how they took it away instead of, you know. Yeah, that's rough. What was school like for you? Did you have lots of friends, and was that a positive experience for you? I think so. I, I mean, again, we moved around a lot. So my younger years, I sort of, I think I, I, I created a slight detachment strategies. So because we moved a lot, so I, I would be friends with people. But then when we would move, I wouldn't be so devastated that it would, you know, crush me. I know lots of people. I do have to this day, it's actually also sort of a positive thing because I have all kinds of friends all over the world and in all different kinds of groups. And I really love going in and, you know, different groups of people that I know from tech to music to sobriety to just all walks of life. I can go into the yoga, anywhere I can go in and feel comfortable for a while, it used to feel lonely, like, okay, I can go into this group, but I don't feel a part of this group because I'm separate. Mm-hmm. And, and I really turned the tables on that and really thought it through and thought, no, you're so lucky. You get to go into all these different um, walks of life and become, fr- you know, and, and enjoy all these different people. So I, I'm really lucky. I, I, I like actually what social media has done in that sense because I can bond with different people that I've, I've met throughout my lifetime and they're all in one place but yeah no that's very cool I like how you changed your mindset around that you know instead of being like like a compromised or victimy place to like an empowered place because I think a lot of people feel that especially people that are struggling with addiction I hear a lot of people feel like they don't belong anywhere yeah and I feel like Almost that is one of the roots of addiction is like we have this terrible feeling of being disconnected and, and by drinking or using drugs, you know, we feel more more connected to other people and it's like a bonding experience almost. It's like all the self-consciousness and uh, you know what I mean? It's like all your self-awareness, self-consciousness is removed and then you can connect better. Absolutely. I actually think that what happens is we don't, we numb ourselves so much that we don't care as much that we don't fit in. It's not so much that we connect more when we're using, it's that we actually numb our emotions and our brain chemistry and our feelings so much that we just don't care that we don't fit in. At least that's what it was for me, uh, or that we don't feel a part of. And yes, I have, you know, read a, quite a few books on cognitive therapy and thinking through things. So, you know, when I started to feel like, oh, I don't fit with that group, or I don't fit with this group, or, and, and really the reality is I fit with all of them. And instead of feeling disconnected, I, I am really excited that I can go in and, and be connected with all kinds of different people all the time. It's really great. Yeah, no, I love that. That's awesome. How old were you when you started using or drinking? What did you start with first? I, I started with Jack Daniels. <laughs> Uh, I, I started with Jack Daniels at my friend's house. That's what I picked. Um, but my early drinking, probably around 14 through about 16, 17, was what I would consider somewhat experimental that, you know, that kids do. Um, I did get busted for taking alcohol to school, which I'd completely forgotten about <laughs> until I started doing these podcasts. Did you take it to school? Was it high school or junior high? High school. High school. Okay. 
Yeah, I took I took it to the high school and and I didn't get in trouble, but my friend got busted and she ratted me out. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, so then the next year I went to a different high school, and then the next year we moved to um, Fullerton, California, which is sort of what I consider my. Uh, you know, where we sort of stayed for the next 28 years or so. So that was, and that's where I started drinking a little bit more and, you know, started hanging out with musicians and sort of my life changed a little bit and and I added other drugs to my repertoire. (laughs) But I want to talk about, because, you know, when I was a teenager, I think um, I've talked about this before. I think we all sort of have these, feelings of inadequacy and not fitting in and all these, you know, and maybe alcoholics and addicts are a little bit more sensitive. I'm not sure about that. But I think we all, all of us have those feelings. And I just think that alcohol and drugs become one of our solutions during that time. And that's sort of what sets us apart. I think we turn to those things for a solution. For me, it was, you know, the courage to sort of become who I wanted to be. It gave me, you know, courage at the bottom of the bottle is certainly a true, was true for me. Yeah, absolutely. And then later adding drugs that were speedy and made me vibrant and just say things that I was afraid to say or do things I was afraid to do and sort of, you know, yeah, just sort of expand my energy. (laughs) (laughs) Expand your energy. (laughs) Was there a moment where you felt like, oh, I'm crossing the line here and this is becoming a problem? No, so my, I mean, yes, but not until I moved to New York and started doing heroin. So my story is that I drank what I consider somewhat normally, but not really, you know, like Mm -hmm. as a teenager. And then I started, uh, I got in the music business at a really early age. I was working for a booking agent uh, and we worked at a lot of clubs in Southern California, famous clubs, Sunset Strip, Roxy Whiskey, stuff like that. And so, you know, we drank a lot. That was just sort of our lifestyle. And then, you know, everybody was doing cocaine. So I did a lot of cocaine and then I was introduced to crystal meth and biker speed, which was to me seemed a lot much more efficient than cocaine. Right. could you could do the smaller amount and still you know be up for days and and so I really you know by my last year in high school I was already using a lot of bead a lot of crystal meth and into my first year of college and then I sort of realized to me anytime you're doing a drug every day something in you goes you know this might be a problem so by high school, when my when I was really skinny and I my body wasn't functioning quite right, I sort of knew that there was a problem. And I would try and sort of control my drinking and using during that time. And I would do what they talk about, you know, drink less, not do certain drugs, do certain drugs, only drink rolling rock beer, you know, stop the Jack Daniels, maybe don't do crystal methamphetamine anymore, you know, just... That sort of controlled using, but I was still, you know, in very much in the middle of work and, and fun and career. So, okay. So, so high school, um, you were, and when you said that you, I just want to back up a second. You said that your body wasn't functioning right. Was it like, were you just like too thin or were you getting sick or not? What did that look like? Uh, yeah, that those drugs really mess up your kidneys and your bladder. 
the crystal meth for me, like some people, it messes up their teeth and stuff like that. I really, yeah. Yeah, I really had a problem with my kidneys and my bladder oh, during, wow. during that time period. Okay. Yeah. Okay. So were you just in a lot of pain? No, I'm just, I would get chronic kidney infections. Oh, wow. Okay. Yeah. yeah. Thought about that too. Okay. So <laughs> <laughs> uh, then basically what happened was I pulled a geographic in 1989. Uh, I had a lot of chaos in my life. I was working in the music business. My boyfriend was in a band and then my next boyfriend was in a band and then they all got in the same band together. And that was, a, <laughs> and that was awkward. Quite, yeah, that was quite, quite a, um, an experience to say the least. And which by the way, I'll just fast forward and say I'm friends with all of them now and we're oh, all nice. healed. Right. But it was You're super traumatic uh, between, you know, 18 and 21 that all of that happened. And I basically moved to New York city uh, to get away from all the chaos. Now, some of the chaos was caused by my drinking some and using, and some of it was just caused by those circumstances. And so I, I moved to New York and uh, as far as ways I could, and sort of started over and I got a job in a bar and at a record company at the same time. <laughs> Fun. What did you do for the record company? Uh, I did A&R, which is basically talent scouting. So my job was to go to bars and clubs every night and watch bands. <laughs> oh my God, what a job. What does A&R stand for? Artists and repertoire. Artists and repertoire. Oh, that's yes. super fun. So your job was to go out and be friends with musicians. That sounds like an awesome job for a young woman. Uh, yeah, it was quite, quite interesting. Um, go out and, and, and I mean, the bigger, that's the simple version of what A&R does. What I learned later, because I did it for many years, I did it in recovery as well, is it's not just about that. It's also about artist development, you know, finding a band you love, developing them, helping them create the proper music, put the record in order, sequence the album, all that kind of stuff until the album's done and then sort of hand, you know, handing it off to marketing to, to do. And the marketing people just are responsible for like getting their, getting the word out, that type of thing. Yeah. That's, okay. That's a simple version of it. Yeah. <laughs> the artist and repertoire basically is, you know, uh, scouting the talent and helping them develop a vision up until they get to, you know, where they're ready to mark, be released and marketed. Right. Okay. Very cool. Yeah. So, um, so what happened? What, what made you decide that this was a problem that you should stop? Did you have like a moment of clarity or maybe you can sort of walk me through that process towards the end? Like what happened that you decided that you needed to, that led you to recovery? Sure. Absolutely. So while I was, uh, working in this, at this company, I, uh, on the other end of it was also started to at the bar, um, uh, that I worked out at, at the beginning, a friend of mine introduced me to powdered, uh, heroin. And because I was used to s snorting things back in California, I just tried it. It was easy. And I really liked it. It numbed my feelings. So the opposite of the alcohol and the crystal meth of like, you know, making everything vibrant, this one just numbed me and made me not care that I felt bad and like really numbed all the emotional stuff I was going through. And so what happened is I would, I just started using occasionally. And as it goes, of course, it built and built and built. So it'd be like, okay, I'd use on Friday and Saturday drinking in between. And then I, you know, 
Friday, Saturday, Sunday, and then Thursday, Friday, Saturday until eventually, you know, it took a little while, but eventually I was, I was using, I was snorting heroin almost every day. Wow. And then that amount that, which was a tiny amount to start would get bigger and bigger and bigger. And, you know, my, my addiction got worse and worse. And yeah, then at some point, um, my friend that I was using with was shooting, started shooting it. And so I tried it. And then it was a quick decline after that. Cause I, you know, once you're doing that, you can't really say you don't have a problem. Right. So I had the number for a detox place memorized. And three months after that, uh, after I first started, uh, you know, here's the thing. I really wanted to quit. As soon as I, I started, I almost wanted to quit. You know, I, I like the way it field, felt and I sort of, went, oh, I guess I'm a junkie for a while. And it, and it was a really weird period of time, but I really wanted to quit. And the reality is every Friday I would go, okay, this weekend is the weekend. And then the weekend would come and by Saturday I'd be dope sick and I would be down, you know, buying more drugs on Avenue A. So the reality was I wanted to, but at that point, by that point, I couldn't, I couldn't do it myself. So eventually I called a rehab or a detox. I had had the number memorized and I remember calling the guy and just saying, you know, almost like out of body hearing myself say I need help. And his name was Albert. And he said, it's time for you to surrender, Rinda. And so the next day I checked myself into that detox and that started me on the new journey. Wow, that's amazing. Yeah, and I'm just so impressed and amazed that you were able to get off it that quickly. I mean, I, I've talked to people who get strung out on it for like decades, you know what I mean? And like, they just can't seem to get off it. It's like heroin seems to be one of those drugs that's really super hard to get off of. Why, why do you think you were able to transition the way you did? Oh, that's a good question. Um, so two things happened. When I got when I got out of rehab or when I got out of detox, uh, the record company that I was working for, the 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 men that ran the record company, called me in and and basically told me that they were going to ship me back to California, and they fired me even though they couldn't technically fire me, and they they said basically we're going to keep you on health insurance for six months, we're going to ship all your stuff home because we want you to be with your family, you need support. And this is how we are. Yeah, this is how we're choosing to support you. And I, I like to tell this story, because we hear so many horror stories in the music business about people turning a blind eye. Oh, really? Um, to, you know, people that are using and even though they didn't come and do an intervention or anything like that, when I came out of, of detox, that was their solution. We're getting you out of here. And I firmly believe that they saved my life because oh. if I had stayed in New York, it would have been really easy for me to just do the same pattern. So it's really a matter of, you know, changing the habit. And then when I came back to California, when I first moved back, I wouldn't have known where to find that type of drug anyway. And then I had some angels that brought me into the 12-step program and then that journey started. But I think one of the biggest things was that I was removed from a situation completely. Yeah, it took you out of the environment that you were getting sick in. Yeah, 
Yeah, no, that's, you know, and it's kind of funny. There seems to be like these paradoxes in, in recovery. You know, we talk about doing geographics, like we instinctually think that if we change our environment, then things will be different. But in your case, it sounds like, you know, after you, you got help first, right? And then you were able to change your environment, like in a positive way, right? Well, after... Look- I mean, I did that twice, even moving to New York, getting away out of the chaos. When I was changing my environment, I was getting out of the chaos. Uh, when I left LA to go to New York, I was getting out of some chaos. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then when I left New York to go to back home to California, I was getting out of chaos. Um, so uh, ge- geographics haven't been a bad thing for me. I've lived in Paris, and, I've, and I uh, three years ago moved to Joshua Tree to be calm, again, to get out of the chaos of L.A. So I don't think necessarily geographics are always a bad thing. I think what happens is if you think that things are going to be different, they are, but they also aren't because you're the same person. But it does allow you to start fresh. Absolutely. Yeah. Well, you did it with the right mindset for she got help through um, the rehab. How long were you in rehab for? Is it 30 days or? No, I was in detox for like a week. Then I came out. All that stuff happened. They shipped my stuff home. And then I I used again uh, in New York City and then went back into that same detox for another seven days and then then went home. Okay. So the <laughs> detox, is that when you first get off opiates, uh, I've heard of dope sick, you know, you, you get like the flu, like the really bad, that's when you're going through withdrawals. Yeah. Oh yeah. That was awful. I will never forget that. And you know, uh, what's funny is the first handful of years, and I'm sure this happens with people, uh, the first handful of years, whenever you get the flu, when you're sober, whenever you get the flu, you feel like you're dope sick. So you're oh, like, wow. wait, I, and you want to, so I have a really good advice for anybody who ha, is getting off those type of drugs and they get sick and they want that, go take a hot lavender bath. Okay. Because it makes your body feel that warmth that happens from mm-hmm. opiates or at least from heroin and those type. I don't, I have never done um, oxy or any of those other kind of drugs, so I can't speak to that. But that feeling of like warmth that you miss, uh, rosemary, lavender, baths really work a lot. (laughs) Good to know. Good to know. Yeah, Yeah, it was really, uh, yeah, it was, I'll never forget that. Yeah, that sounds rough. So then you started doing 12-step meetings, is that right? You said there were a couple of angels that directed you. Can you walk me through, what was that, what was that like? It sounds like there's a story there. Yeah, well, I came home to Southern California. A friend of mine who, um, I'd seen her like maybe eight months earlier, was a really bad junkie. And um, she called me and and came to visit me at my parents' house. And when she walked through the door, she was literally dressed in a white suit. And she had blonde hair and blue eyes. And when I had seen her the year before, her like, or before her like hair, she was just a mess. She just looked awful and like, she had like roots growing out and then she walked into my house and she looked like an angel and I, and she so she literally and she brought me to my first 12 step meetings and that was really a big change for me the other thing that was a big change for me is really early i met a set of musicians that were in recovery um in southern california and they they that was 
really pivotal for me personally because I needed to know that I could still have the career that I wanted to do and, you know, the life that I wanted to do and not that I had to change. They, they say you have to change everything, but I don't necessarily think that's true. I think you have to change a lot. But for me, knowing that I didn't have to stop going to clubs or stop working with musicians because I had surrounded myself with a group of sober musicians and I built a strong, solid foundation in 12 step. I was able to continue my music career and that I was able to do that by these, you know, being around all these people that were also on the same journey as me. So that was really amazing. Yeah, that's really cool. And are you still friends with these guys? I'm, I don't yeah. know. Yeah, I yeah. Am. I, I am. What, uh, one of the artists, uh, artists, it's a band called the Cadillac Tramps. They're not a band any longer. The singer just passed last year. Uh, there's a great documentary out there, a Cadillac Tramps documentary about them. If you want to, if any of your listeners want to check that out. Um, yes, it's a great story of hope and recovery, and they helped me immensely in my early sobriety. I ended up managing them and, and going oh, on all nice. these adventures with them, and they are, yes, still sober and still still my brothers. Oh, that's awesome. Yeah, sometimes you just need an example of how to walk the path, you know? Like, where are the boundaries? Like, how do you survive? And in that arena. Um, I'm in sales, you know, and that's also like a very drinking oriented profession, but you know, there's ways to survive that, you know, with boundaries and being very clear about what I can and can't do or, you know, who I should be spending time with, who I hang out with. And so it sounds like you had a similar experience where you were able to stay with people who were safe and who were able to, you know, live the life within safe boundaries. Well, yes, but I also, you know, continued to do A&R my first 15 years of sobriety. So wow, I was, 15 years. Yeah, I think that's right. Let me see, 92. Yeah, something like that. Yeah. At least, at least 10 years in that A&R, the part of A&R where you go out every night and see bands and that kind of thing. So um, man, A&R management and first I went into management. So, and then into back into A&R and then I, w I moved into the kids division and it got a little bit less crazy, but I think I had eight or nine years of sobriety before I did that. So yeah, I, I was in clubs a lot in Los Angeles and it, part of that is also conditioning. You know, I was, I had a strong enough solid foundation. If I felt uneasy, I would bring people with me, but mm -hmm. there were again, enough people around me and my group of people that were going out and doing this as well. And I was always pretty open about my recovery in person. It's the first time I've in the last couple of months I've been talking about it, you know, publicly, but I was always really open about it with people around me. So people would learn not to drink around me or, or just to just deal offer with you. It. Yeah. Not offer you drinks or and I've never been that person that cared. Like, I don't care. I'll get a, I'll get like soda water with cranberry juice and just have a drink. And it's like, I, I've never been that kind of person that it was like, but I'm not drinking and everyone else is. I don't, I don't care about yeah. that. I've never cared about that part. I've had pretty strong will in that area. So you didn't feel, you didn't feel temptation to drink. It wasn't a struggle. Like when you were done, you just decided you were done. And, um, no, the the harder the hardest part for me was 
the, the, the depression and other things that went with it. But dr because drinking wasn't a solution any longer. Mm -hmm. um, drinking and using was clearly a, I had the no matter what. I was basically no matter what, no matter what, no matter what, no matter what. So when life threw stuff at me, it was still no matter what, no matter what. Mm -hmm. um, what was harder was if you, you know, you're sober and you still have depression or um, all these other things happening or life on life's terms and you don't know how to handle it. So what are the solutions? Because you used, you know, what are those solutions? So I think the struggle wasn't so much about drinking anymore as it was about how to cope with life and feeling all your emotions and, and depression. Yeah, no, that's a, actually a really good point and probably a good segue to the solutions part uh, because, you know, I feel like I'm, I participate on a lot of online recovery communities and this, the really big ones, I see that people struggle with relapse and things like that. What are your suggestions on how to manage like your first 30 60, 90 days of recovery? Ooh, good one. Um, well, now there's lots of multiple pathways. Um, you know, 12-step meetings saved my life, so I would suggest trying those. If those, if you just absolutely do not connect with 12-step meetings, there's these other, there's smart recovery now, there's refuge recovery. Um, there are other avenues to recovery that I would look, look, and also, you know, go to a handful of meetings before you choose. Um, what we don't right. talk about. <laughs> I'll just, I'll have to add one little thing, which is the two things I would recommend is the women work with the women because there's a lot of, you know, it's not always a safe place for women, right? Like there's women's meetings. Do you ever go to meet? Did you ever go to women's meetings? Yes. Yeah. So I, I recommend women's meetings, but a lot of women have issues with other women. But um, just try to stick with the women because, you know, the 12 step rooms are not what I would call like the hotbed of mental health. Right. And there's <laughs> there's some guys in there that are not not super safe. So I, I would suggest uh, going to women's meetings, hanging out with the women. But like you said, to your point, you know, try a bunch of different meetings out before you make your decision because they can be so different one meeting to the next. I've got 25 years of sobriety. I guess we should have started with that. But, yeah, um, right. 25 years sober. <laughs> clean is over. Yeah, we should have started at the beginning. I, it, may, it may have changed everybody's idea in this conversation. Um, but in the I'll put it in the I, show notes. <laughs> okay, perfect. Yeah. I'll put it in your title, Rinda, 25 years sober. <laughs> um, uh, with uh, I say with commu uh, complete humility, but um, I found it really helpful to do a woman's meeting a week, um, to do a, a meeting with a lot of old timers that, you know, all kinds of people. Uh, I found it really helpful to do a meeting with really young people because <laughs> one, I've always felt really grateful, but also you could see the different struggles. Um, and so for me, a variety, you know, and, and just finding a sponsor and working the steps and that whole, all of that. What I what I'm finding that my most important mission now is is what we're not addressing enough of across the board is we we offer these solutions that are psychological and spiritual in nature and community connection building, but we're not we're still not addressing the biochemical changes that we've done to our bodies and biochemical recovery. So what I would say to anybody in any length of sobriety, but especially early sobriety, is watch what you're eating. Right. Yeah. 
that can change your mood and your mood can change your recovery. So you have to like really eat, you know, it's highly suggested that you eat protein every four hours in early recovery. Okay. Because what happens is if you're, if your blood sugar drops, because most, a lot of alcoholics have hypoglycemia, if your blood sugar drops, you don't have enough blood, um, energy to your prefrontal cortex and then you make really bad decisions. Right. So, Emotional decisions. Yeah. Yeah. So people don't realize that if they're not eating right or they're, you know, living on caffeine and donuts, that they're not going to make good decisions. And those decisions might include relapse. Okay. So yeah. it's really yeah. important to, to supplement your body with food. And then I, of course, you know, believe in also supplementing with um, supplements, actual supplements. Right. Um, but but you definitely we're not addressing that as a, as a, as a nation, as, as not even as a community, as a community. Yeah. We're actually not addressing the biochemical recovery at all. And I think that that's my mission now is to, is to sort of point that out across the board. Yeah. I think that's important to, to make that part of the conversation that I, you know, that you're the first person that I've talked to that's really been like, you know, that's a very practical strategy. Eat protein every four hours. Don't eat too much sugar and lay off the caffeine. Like super practical uh, and with a very good reason, right? Because it affects your, your mind and your decision-making process. That has got to be probably one of the most practical suggestions that I've heard. That's awesome. Yeah, thank, thank you. Thank um, you, you know, we've ravaged our bodies. So I, there's lots of different things that you can do to, to fix that you know, the biochemical part of, of recovery. So, okay. Biochem and, um, you and I had talked earlier, you have, I'm going to list a resource that you have on your website. You, you have lots of books that talk about holistic recovery. Is that what you would call that? That's what I've been calling it. Yeah. Holistic okay. Recovery. Yeah. That makes sense. <laughs> that <works laughs> for me. Let's call it holistic. Let's just start calling it that. And then it'll be a thing. Um, okay. So talk to me about how do you think of holistic recovery? Oh, you know what though? Um, don't let me forget to ask you about like spirituality. We really didn't talk about that a whole lot, but um, I really want to hear about first the holistic part of recovery and then uh, your spiritual practices. So don't let me forget to ask you about that. <laughs> I, I won't. Okay. I, I'd say I'm a holistic recovery advocate because there, there, there's starting to be this emergence of, you know, like I said, smart recovery and um, refuge recovery and stuff like that. Then there's also a lot of like yoga for recovery and meditation practices. Those are starting to get into the body and the mind. Um, for me, that, that I, we're still not addressing, again, nutrition. Okay. Nutrition. Specifically nutrition and, you know body, like, you know, functional medicine. Um, so I do have a bunch of books that I've read. I was informed a lot by Julia Ross's The Mood Cure and uh, some books by Dr. Hyla Cass and some other books that really talk about oh, Seven Weeks of Sobriety by Joan Matthews. Um, these books all talk about your body, your sensitivity to sugar, your neurotransmitters, what happens when you drink, B vitamins, you know, Bill W was even into like suggesting B vitamins for his, for us, but 
that just didn't pass muster with the AA folks. So. I hear he was also uh, talking a little bit about what's it called, a uh, microdosing. There's some <laughs> new discussions on microdosing. He's open, he's open to some holistic recovery. He's an open um, kind of guy. <laughs> The, the reality is we need to support our physical body. Got it. Okay. Now, all the processes in, in our body, our brain, our gut, and our endocrine system all need to be supported for us to make all the rest of it work. Like, we're just not talking about that. So you have to support your neurochemicals. You know, we talk so much. So many, so many of us, myself included, which is part of my story, went on antidepressants. And then I got off antidepressants using um, supplements. But we're not addressing the neurochemicals in our, in our brain, the serotonin, the norepinephrine, the dopamine, all the stuff that is affected by the chemicals that we've been using when we right. use. Mm -hmm. And alcohol and how alcohol is ravaged, usually ravages our gut. It, ta it, changes, our bio uh, it changes our gut systems. Yeah, um, the flora. You know, it changes all of that, or we're not eating right, or we've gone days without sleeping, or we're addicted to opiates, and so our dopamine is just jacked. Yeah. <laughs> that's a, that's is that a, a medical term? <laughs> our, our opiates, are, our, our dopamine system is just jacked. It's jacked, um, okay. And, and we're not talking about how to, like, you, we have to rebalance those things okay. for proper recovery. We just do. and. And we're not doing that. So what's a good way to, so you mentioned a couple of uh, books, Julia Ross's book and uh, like the seven weeks of recovery. I'll, I'll put those in the show notes as well. You can, you're welcome to use the links that I sent you. Okay. On, on Very every day for my company. Okay. Um, all those are listed there. Mm -hmm. And then the Alliance for Addiction Solutions, which I am now a board member of, has amazing information it's there's so much information on their website in fact it's almost hard to navigate they have amazing information and they their theories and their they inform not only the supplements for very every day which is my company but all of this idea ideas that i've been talking about now i read julia ross's book almost 10 years ago i think now and hyla cass's books and then you fast forward i got off medication using their theories mm -hmm. and practices, a pro-recovery diet um, and supplementation with amino acid therapy. And then I launched this uh, brand with um, five formulas that sort of are all informed by the Alliance for Addiction Solutions and those people. So those are the two links I, I'll give you in the show notes that okay. you can provide to people. And they people can just go there and get tons of information either from my website or for, from theirs. And then I am also uh, soon launching uh, a website called Supplement Your Recovery, which will have a lot of this information available as well. Okay, I will, I will put that in the show notes. So your transition off of antidepressants, you did that under a doctor's care? I've been off antidepressants for three, um, uh, two and a half years. Okay. I did inform my doctor that I was doing it. Uh -huh. I did also inform five of my closest friends that I was doing it That's so that smart. if they found mood changes before I did, because most times other people notice your change in mood before you do, mm -hmm. um, I let them know. And then I tapered down off me uh, medication using, uh, from. in my particular case, I used 
the velvet bean. It's called Mikuna Puriens, and it works on the dopamine pathways. And I went down on my Wellbutrin and used the dop- well. It's now called Dopamine in my my line of supplements. Um, and I use that exact product to get off my Wellbutrin. But yes, of course, people should talk to their doctor about it. Right. You know, my theory is that for every Every pharmaceutical that is out there for mood disorders, there is a natural solution that I think one can either transition to with under doctor's care Mm -hmm. or try before they go on a pharmaceutical because the side effects are just, they are just, in my, in, in my opinion, had I known about that before I went on them, I would have never gone on, on, um, antidepressants and it probably would have been happier, faster. I am now technically from do- the doctor, clinical depression free for two and a half years. I feel like I should put a disclaimer out there. Like I'm not a doctor. I don't play one on the internet and <laughs> we're not suggesting. Yeah. We're, we're not suggesting we're not offering medical advice or anything like that. Absolutely. I just want to no, 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 no. disclaimer. I, all I'm doing is informing. I'm telling my story about what I use. Yeah. And, um, there's information out there for you for, for people. But I, yes, I absolutely think, um, people should talk to their doctors about it. And I, I, there's a place for medication. There's nothing wrong with medication. Um, I feel like I personally, and this is my opinion, only feel like it's overprescribed all in all areas, including like cholesterol, all of it, it's, it's overprescribed. Um, but there is an absolutely a place for it and um, it's it can be life saving. Yeah. And if if people want to come get off medications, yes, they should absolutely work with their doctor. There's no question. Yeah. So the overarching message I'm getting from you is that focus on good nutrition and repairing the damage that we did from drinking and using. You know, repairing the damage. Yes, I think I, I think supplementation as well, though, because I think if you've balanced out, you may be able to get away with just doing it with, with um, good nutrition. But if you still are having any sort of mood imbalances, there probably need more supplementation to build those stores back up that you just simply can't get from food. Okay. But if you look into amino acid therapy, it, that, that will inform you. Okay, great. And, you know, from the time you got sober up to now, like what other forms of, like what other kind of resources did you use? I'm an avid learner. So I'm an avid book reader. So, you know, yes, 12-step recovery, um, cognitive therapy. Uh, I actually read more books about cognitive therapy and didn't really see a cognitive therapist. Um, I'm I'm a very self-taught self-managing person so um human guinea pig (laughs) I mean I've read everything from you know quantum physics and reading about quantum theory actually helped me just as much as some cognitive therapy because it helped with my expansion of spirituality which we've talked to you know which we'll get into or you wanted to ask me about but um I've did all kinds of different modalities. Exercise is the other thing that, you know, we don't talk about a lot, but exercise and nutrition, um, those two things were actually the most game changers. Okay. Yeah. Eat right and exercise. How many times have we heard that? I'm like, Oh, don't let that be the answer. Exercise. Damn it. (laughs) Answer. Yeah. I mean, I would say, you know, I would say that there's, you know, 
a handful of things to do, but it's really simple. You need to have a spiritual connection and that connection can be with a higher power and with your fellow member, fellow man and woman, fellow humans. So you have to have that connection. Um, you have to deal with your psychological and emotional life. So however one does that, and then you, you have to deal with your body. So body, mind, and spirit really is true. Absolutely. Forgetting about the body part. In, <laughs> I know, right? We abuse it for so long, and then we get sober, and we're like, totally forget about it. And I'm going to I'm gonna say something that's sort of controversial here. Ooh, let's hear it. To me, you can do all the 12-step spiritual work you want, but if your chemicals in your brain are still so screwed up because you aren't reading right, you're not going to grasp that. So oh, it's, that's a good point, you know, and no, you know, and if you're just eating right and taking supplements and your brain feels better, that doesn't mean that you're going to uh, deal with some of your, you know, emotional or connection issues. So it's really three things. You really have to address all three. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And I know people who um, are spiritual and they do therapy or they're good with the connection and stuff or the 12 step stuff, but they don't take care of their bodies. And I just don't think that's, I mean, to me, like, that's a sign of, you know, you're out of balance. It's, it's still sickness. You know, if you're, if you're sober and you're, you know, 50, 100 pounds overweight, you know, what's going on with your recovery that you're still using food to fix your feelings? You know what I mean? Yeah, I mean, I can't address that. I, I know some people, um, there's some great resources out there. Liv's Recovery Kitchen does a lot of work. Um, sort of in the eating space, eating and recovery space. She's she's fabulous. Um, What's her I name again? It's Liv's Recovery Kitchen. Oh, okay. And she does a lot of great conversations about that. I, I've that's not been an issue for me, so I can't really address that. But I can tell you that if 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 you're doing work in other areas and you're you are still you know. I'm not talking about food and as, a, as an addiction, but if you're not using food to um, to be healthy, and it's and you still have mood disorders and and like you know find yourself during the day being super anxious or stress or anxiety and all those things, and you're not eating properly, that is something to look at. Yeah, that's, absolutely. That's my yeah, you're out of balance somewhere. Um, okay, so tell me a little bit about your spiritual practice. Did you grow up with religion at all? Were your parents religious or practice any kind of spirituality? Um, I was born in a Catholic household. Well, my I was born in a hippie Catholic household. My parents were Catholic. So I did go through some Catholic training. And when, when um, I was a teenager, I sort of, my parents decided to go back to Catholic school and I went for a little while. Oh, and then when I got caught with alcohol, it put me in Catholic school for a year, which I thought was interesting. But I never really related to that. I believe that all religions, the good parts of all religions have the same philosophies and they're all interconnected and that the bad parts of religions, the man-made part of religions, um, you know, I'm an avid history buff, so the, <laughs> I have opinions on, about, on religion and history. But as a personal spirit, personally, I'm very spiritual. I, I believe highly in spirituality and quantum physics and synchronicity. And I have a lot of stuff happen that just, you know, is unexplainable other than I, I really like where science and spirit mix. 
Um, in fact, there's a website called Spirit Science that I love. Spirit <laughs> Science. Oh, I'm going to have to check that out. And it, so I really like where sort of spirit and yeah. science mix. I think that's really great. Um, as far as my spiritual practice, I moved to Joshua Tree a couple of years ago. So right outside my window is, you know, Joshua Trees and boulders. And, you know, um, I've been doing some breath work in the morning. And that's been really good sort of combining spiritual and the physical sort of, I sort of believe that, that, you know, it's, it's what your higher connection is with the universe and with those around you is really what, what drives me. Do you have a definition for your higher power? No, just is. Just is. I like it. I, I, I really like to say the universe provides because I truly believe that. Yeah. Yeah, that works. I mean, I identify with a lot of what you're saying. So um, uh, oddly enough, I'm a quantum physics girl. I have a couple books, um, Fred Allen Wolf. Are you familiar with him? Yeah. Yep. <laughs> yeah. So uh, funny that you should say that. Yeah, because I like, I'm all about like a God of evidence, right? Like I'm a science girl at heart. I grew up in the church and I had always had like a connection with God, but my idea about God changed and when I first got sober, I related to God with skin on it. You know, people, I, like God works in my life through people, right? Like I get that heart connection from some people and, you know, you spoke to synchronicity. There have been things that happened in my life that, so for me, God is like a master planner, right? Like, but I don't think like, I hear people say, oh, God has a, God has a plan. And I'm like, but does God have a plan or can God turn any situation to your benefit. You know what I mean? Well, I, I think I will go with you are God. I, I feel like we co-create with God, but I don't feel like, but I don't, there are certain things that I couldn't change by myself. Like I couldn't. I no, couldn't. absolutely. Let, yeah. I, I have to be careful when I just said you are God, cause that doesn't sound right. Basically you do co-create. Co-create. Yeah. You know what I found, if you go back to the 12 steps um, and in the word surrender, and power and willingness and powerlessness for me as soon as I admitted that I was powerless over alcohol and other drugs and people and you know our political climate then I realized that that gave me some power back and and that's also sort of because I'm powerless over those things therefore I have power to make my own choices and make some changes now that is after I would say after you're out of the beginning grips of your disease because you're biochemically addicted um and but once you get a certain amount of surrender and power you're actually given some of your power back and you do have power over your willpower when you get a little bit of clarity so I don't, I don't know. I think that um, it's all intertwined, the, the quantum physics and God. And then, you know, I turn that into neuroplasticity and how your brain works. Um, I've re read a lot of books on that and they're all sort of intertwined. And so I have a really big view of, of God and spirituality that is really hard for me to, I mean, we could have a whole conver like our just conversation on that. You should have started with that, huh? <laughs> I didn't know. <laughs> we would have never gotten to any of the rest of this, you know. <laughs> yeah. uh, Absolutely. Uh, and 
I, and I think, you know what, I think it's, I think it's, it's also a really personal, yeah. I think it's a really personal conversation. So I think some of the other things we've been talking about are really practical and, and, or, you know, we'll, we'll be able to help people. And I, I enjoy talking philosophy all, no matter what, um, I really enjoy it. But I also think that it's a very personal choice. Absolutely. And so that's why, you know, that's why even to this day when, you know, the 12 step book is written in such a Judeo Christian manner that I cringe every once in a while at the he's and the, you know, may you find him now and those type of things. And I've, I've, I really had to, um, overlook those work that, that language when I first got into 12 step meetings. Um, yeah, I, I think maybe I would add to the advice for your first, you know, 90 days is to, um, take what you like and leave the rest. There's look for the good, you know, look for the things that you connect with, you know, if something doesn't fit for you, it's okay. You don't have to like swallow it whole. You know what I mean? It's like you can go to meetings and, and ease into it. I think it's worth, you know, going to enough meetings and hanging out long enough for the, for you to allow the good stuff to come in too. Yeah, absolutely. And you know, there are other alternatives out there too, if, if 12 step does not connect. So yeah, I actually just interviewed this guy that got sober through uh celebrate recovery okay great i don't even know about that one that's awesome yeah it's like a religious one he's he grew up in the church or whatever and got sober through church and but um yeah i'm definitely gonna have to uh find somebody that practices uh refuge or or smart recovery too because i'm all about uh there's many paths right many paths to recovery so but uh, we're actually coming up on our time and I usually wrap up the episode with, and we kind of touched on it already, so this might be a little bit redundant, but do you have a, a daily practice or a weekly practice that you can share, you know, how you maintain recovery for 25 years? One day at a time. <laughs> the name of my podcast, funny enough. <laughs> <laughs> well, and actually, I just want to... Yeah, even my even my company, you know, very every day, which is my supplement company, it, it's sort of a play on that too. It's every day, right? Yeah, and very is sort of the end of recovery, so it's sort of a play on those words as well. Yeah, one day at a time, and and really um, talking about those three areas that we've been talking about this whole time, mm-hmm. uh, making sure that you have a spiritual connection, a connection with your uh, your other people around you. So the spiritual aspects, uh, um, for me, I, I make sure that I have time for that, and um, making sure that I'm taking care of myself emotionally and um, mentally. So if I get into funks or depressions or I'm having emotional issues, I talk to somebody about that and then clearly uh, eating and exercise. And for me, supplements did really change everything. So I will also say supplements. Okay, awesome. Well, I'll certainly um, include links to everything that uh, we talked about today. And I'm so grateful for your time. Thanks for taking the time out to talk to us today and Super enlightening, super stoked to have some practical strategies about uh, eating protein every four hours. And, <laughs> and, and, and awesome. for people that are, for, for, I'm sorry, for people that are, um, you know, don't eat um, animals. Oh, right. And there is, you know, lentils. There are, you can do yeah, a lot proteins, of plant-based yeah. protein. So it's not like, I'm not saying to go eat. And when I say protein every, that doesn't mean go to in and out every four hours. Like, <laughs> healthy I protein's just, people. I just, 
I just want to like clarify that before we Thank leave. you. Thank you for clarifying <laughs> that. Yeah, because that was like sweet in and out every four hours. <laughs> and um, a lot of people have been asking me the last word. And I would just say that like, no matter what, it does get better. Just hang on and ask for help. And don't, you know, don't be ashamed to ask for help. It's hard to ask for help. But I did. And you can too. And it does get better does get better. Well, let's end on that positive note. Rinda, thank you so much for your time. I really appreciate it. Thank you. Have a great day. Thank you too. Bye. One last thing before you go, if you enjoyed the podcast today, please don't forget to subscribe on iTunes or Stitcher and leave a review. And if you'd like to make a donation to the podcast and help me keep the lights on, you can do so by visiting odatchat.com. There's a donation button or membership button on the right hand side. Have a great day. Thank you so much for joining us.